Welcome to Africa Stories in the 55. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. On this month's program, we have a newly released novel that tells a number of tales surrounding those who have traveled from afar. Travelers by Nigerian author Helon Habila explores different stories about people who have physically, but sometimes only psychologically, endured a journey to a new life. Here's Helon speaking to us about what Travelers is all about. It's about travelers, especially African travelers coming from Africa to Europe. And it's a story that I stumbled upon when I was in Berlin doing my one-year fellowship as a DAAD fellow. And I met some of these, you know, the whole migrants, African migrants in Europe. I was actually approached by a newspaper in 2013 after the tragedy in Lampedusa when over 300 migrants drowned in the Mediterranean. So I was approached to write an, an article about that. And that's really how I got introduced to the subject matter. Of course, I had been following it. I had read about it here and there, but that was my first direct contact, as it were, with the subject matter. And that's how I started meeting them in Berlin, all over the place. I started seeing them um, for the first time. And I was fortunate to talk to some of them. And that really got me interested. It's, it's, it's something that makes you sad, you know, what's happening both in Africa and seeing them also in Europe. And I got interested in their lives and I wanted to write about it. And I really couldn't, couldn't rest until I started writing about it. So I interviewed them. And the book basically is about the stories they told me, how I changed those stories from interviews, real life stories to fiction. So you have these different sets of stories, but all are interconnected. That's thematically interconnected and also structurally interconnected. But it's essentially about Africans in Europe and it's about traveling. And it's also more than that. It's about people just trying to have a life, trying to be free, trying to discover a new home because the home they live in is not, not sustainable. They can't live in their homes now. I thought it was interesting that you you've decided to call your novel Travelers and not Migrants. Can you tell us why you, you made that distinction? I think travelers says more than just migrants. Migrants tries to be too specific, especially with the usage in in the media. It's almost become a bad word, and it's always connected with either African migrant, Mexican migrants, or things like that. And so I wanted to avoid that. And the, I think there's a kind of more universal sense to travelers. At the end of the day, we're all travelers, and traveler doesn't have to mean traveling for economic reasons. It's just travel because you want to travel. So there are all sorts of traveling in, in the book. There's an African fellow who was in America trying to be a writing fellow. Then his wife becomes an artist, an artistic fellow in, in Berlin. So there are all aspects of traveling, but we always link migrants to people who are fleeing something in their countries and trying to come to Europe for a better life. So I wanted to avoid that immediate reference to that, that meaning. So I think Travelers, for me, is deeper, is wider in reference, and it affects all of us. I think I want people to see themselves as travelers as well, because we are all travelers. Now, the, you mentioned the African uh, man. He's, I believe, Nigerian, and he goes with his wife to Berlin. Um, we don't have his name in the book, which is quite interesting. And the book is cut up into different smaller books. So this person, I, he speaks in first person. He's a story magnet. We have 
tons of stories that he receives. People have this um, desire to speak to him about their past and, and perhaps their, their future and what they want out of their lives. But we don't have his story. Not really. Can, can you tell us why? I think when I conceived of the story, I had to get a sort of device through which to tell the stories of this multiple person. How do I do that? You know, I have to make him meet these people in different places and have to make them tell him their stories, which is not easy. That was my biggest challenge in writing the book. How do I get all these stories together? So I, I wasn't really concerned about his own story. I see him more as an eye, as a focus, towards which all these stories kind of come together. And then, of course, I have him also be affected by the phenomenon of being without place and without documents later in the story. But I see him as that person who centralizes the concerns and tries to, to articulate it in some way. He, he makes them more articulate by listening to them. And it happened to me when I was in Berlin, because these people would come to you and they want to tell you their stories. You don't even have to ask them. I was surprised at the beginning because I was afraid that they might, you know, be a bit reticent in telling their stories, but they would actually ask you, why don't you record it? I don't want you to forget this story. I'm going to tell you my story. And then they will start. You literally have to ask them to stop talking. There was that hunger. They want to be heard and understood. And they feel unseen. They feel neglected and anybody who listens to them, you know, is just a kind of validation for them. He's a good listener. That's, that's really the most important thing about him. Well, as you alluded to, he, com- he falls into problems later on. And I was wondering if, if he is almost also like a, a take on an, any man. When he falls into danger, he doesn't really say who he is. And it's, but for the grace of God, you know, go I. That, um, exactly. I mean, it seems that anybody could fall into this problem. That is the center of my story. That is the point I'm trying to make in the book. This could happen to all of us. We're all travelers. And you never know when this might happen to you. You know, you could be sitting in your home today and tomorrow some tragedy might strike and then you're on the road, you know, God forbid, but it could happen. And so what the book is trying to say is to make you look at these people and not try to disparage them as we often see the newspapers do, try to demonize them as some right-wing politicians do, try to think that they're a threat. They are not really a threat. If you can't help them, just, just let them be. And I don't like saying that the story is trying to humanize them because they are human already. I'm not trying to humanize them. I'm just trying to go beyond the obvious, to go beyond the rhetoric, the fear. We all know what's happening in Europe. You know, there's all this hysteria sometimes about these invaders coming from Africa. But the good part is there are also good people. And that's really what gave me hope and also made me want to write this story because I met people who genuinely care for them and try to help them. They are even the ones who will take me to different camps where these migrants are staying and they, they are the champions of these migrants. So there are two sides. There are people who are really, really passionately trying to help and there are people who are passionately against these migrants because of the fear. So I thought, you know, to hear their stories would make you see them in a new light. That's really one of the reasons why I was drawn to this story. 
Well, your your characters are so rich in each of the five books. I mean, you have Manu, the Libyan who is born to a Nigerian father, but like there's a, a character, I think he's Malawian, well, we'll say yeah. he's Malawian, um, yeah. who's quite in- interesting. And then there's the Somali young men who one falls into a different religion, but speaks like six languages. I mean, these yeah. were really based on actual people who you met in Berlin. I mean, it's amazing to think about the richness of people when you use them as a number when you consider them as just migrants yeah they're based on actual people (laughs) and there's also the swiss lady who married an african migrant and she also told me her story so i call them found stories because basically i just stumbled upon these stories and biggest challenge was how do you change these non-fiction interviews into fiction how do you take liberty with it how do you not diminish the importance of these stories of these people by fictionalizing it. I had to treat the stories with respect. I was so happy because they, they told me, you know, go ahead and do whatever you want to do with these stories. Um, we tell you our stories. We trust you as a writer. Just make sure you put us in a good light. Um, make sure you tell our stories. And that's really, that was, it's, it's such a, such a big thing. It's not easy to have all that responsibility to try to tell these stories. So I'm glad that it <laughs> worked out. Throughout the five books, uh, the main character of the story, he is usually present. But the point of view within the book switches sometimes between I and omniscient, which is interesting because then you kind of have how other people view him, but you do not get into his head. Was that another process that you thought to take a step back from I, the main character? Yeah, I didn't want to have one person like dominating the whole book, the whole story. And I don't want that uniform or single point of view. I want all of them to have their voice. I want them to articulate and to say how they feel. So there's a kind of multivocal perspective to the whole book. It was intentional. But of course, for practical purposes, you need one main character for the reader to kind of relate to and as a device to to carry you in terms of movement from one point to the other so that you're following his fortunes and you're following his story that moves you from one point to the other but i want the book to be multivocal and to show that it's it's not just one person there are all sorts of people in this situation men and women and children and they all have their valid stories to tell and they deserve to be seen just as the other person too one of my favorite characters is one who doesn't personally speak. Um, he was in a self-imposed exile, and he never returns. He leaves Zambia as a political exile. And yes. it's, it's such an interesting view because you're dealing with people in the here and now, and this person actually had left years ago and never found his footing, which is a fear for anybody who moves uh, that they won't find their footing wherever they end up um and it's a it's a very interesting juxtaposition yeah i think it's it's a figure that most african writers most africans living outside africa would kind of immediately identify you know we have these african authors who for some reason had to leave their countries they cannot live in their countries they cannot become the kind of writers they want to be and i'm one of the examples of of that (laughs) and In a way, I'm writing about my own experience in that sense, even though he's kind of older than me and he's kind of more political, but he's a common figure of the African writer who's living outside Africa. For some reason, he had to 
run away because of fear of death, because of political reasons. And then you leave your country and you cannot be the kind of writer you want, the kind of writer that you thought um, you, 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 you were going to be. I remember after leaving Nigeria and then trying to write my second and third books, I was, I couldn't write. I was paralyzed when I moved to America. I couldn't, I didn't have an idea in my head. I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself. I couldn't think. I think there's that homesickness and there's this being in this new place that you're trying to make sense of. You begin to doubt yourself as an author. So the only thing that he turns to is what he knows, his political opposition to the government in his country, even though the government has long changed. There's a new government in power and they don't even remember who he is, but he still clings to that because the only, it's the only thing that gives him relevance. So you begin to live this anachronistic life. You know, you're living in the past and you become this voice of Africa. You're interviewed whenever something happens, whenever there's a coup d'etat. But all the time you can't write. And that's the kind of life he, he lives. It's, it's a brutal, it's a sad kind of life. I just try to use him as, a, as, as, as an idea to explore that and to show different kinds of exile. It's not just migrants. There are all sorts of people who are living outside their countries for various reasons. And they would rather be in their countries, but they can't. That's the reality about the kind of life we live in. That's the modern life we live in. Would you be able to read us an excerpt? Okay. We came to Berlin in the fall of 2012. And at first, everything was fine. We lived on Vogelstrasse, next to a park. Across the road was an apotheker. And next to that, a retirement home. And next to that, a residential school for orphans. The school was once a home for single mothers. The mothers moved on and only the children were left. The school is made up of two chairless structures, one noticeably newer than the other, behind waist-high cinder block walls and giant fir trees. In the evenings, the children ran in the park, jumping on trampolines and kicking around balls, their voices cutting through the frigid air, clear as the bell ringing. In the mornings, they sat in the courtyard behind the short fence to craft wooden animals and osier baskets under the watchful eyes of their minders. Once, out early with Gina, one of the boys, anywhere between the ages of eight and ten, sighted us and rushed to the low wall. He leaned over the top, almost vaulting over, his face lit up with smiles, all the while waving to us and shouting, Chocolada! Chocolada! I turned away, ignoring him. Gina stopped and waved back to him. Hello! His eyes grew and grew in his tiny head. Surprise mingled with pleasure as he ran back to his mates. He repeated this whenever he saw us, and Gina always indulged him. But I never got used to it. I never got used to the thin, eager voice and how the other children, about a dozen or so, stopped and raised their eerily identical blonde heads and blue eyes to watch him waving and calling Chocolada as if his life depended on it. 
That's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening to Africa Stories in the 55. I'm Laura Angela Bagneto. If you're not already a regular podcast listener, subscribe to RFI Africa Stories in the 55 on your favorite podcast platform and check out our previous programs. Until next time. Thank you.